from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, the Bible and business. Host Leith Anderson, NAE president, talks with Steve Green, president of Hobby Lobby. Let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, here with Steve Green. Steve has been the president of Hobby Lobby since 2004 and has helped his family grow the business to more than 750 stores in 46 states with approximately 32,000 employees. It is the world's largest privately owned arts and crafts retailer. Hobby Lobby and its affiliates have combined sales of more than $3 billion. And Steve is also the chairman and the driving force behind the Museum of the Bible. He has authored two books, Faith in America, and most recently, The Bible in America. That book, The Bible in America, explores the impact of the Bible on U.S. history and in today's modern world. So today, we're talking Bible and business, and Steve Green is the person to talk to. Thanks for being with us today, Steve. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Lee. So let's uh, start out by talking about your business career and how faith impacts your work. Your father founded Hobby Lobby in the early 1970s, so it's been a part of your life for a long time. And is that something, running a business, that you've always wanted to do? It is. I uh, remember when I was a senior in high school, uh, thinking about you know where I was going to go to college and uh, decided at that point that I wanted to go into the business. I knew what I wanted to do, and I decided to go ahead and forego college and start uh, working in the business. So I graduated from high school and started working full-time and uh, have been working there ever since. Um, you know, I knew that uh, at the time we had six to eight stores and uh, dad was uh, being successful. It was a uh, new startup, so it was still struggling, but uh, knew that that's what I wanted to do, knew that we operated it, uh, you know, according to the principles that uh, dad was raised on and he raised us on, uh, and that being biblical principles. So uh, that's, that's what I did. All right, well, let's pursue that. What do you think the Bible has to say about being a leader in business? Well, I think that our our best example is Christ himself. Uh, he came and uh, as a leader, but uh, did it in the non-traditional way. Uh, you know, the servant leadership model is uh, what he uh, modeled. Uh, and our, our role uh, as a corporate staff, corporate level, is to serve our employ uh, our stores. Uh, our store managers are there to serve our customer. Uh, so uh, we're, we're here to serve. Uh, obviously, the hard work, uh, Scripture tells us whatever we find our hands to do, do it with all your might, obviously with integrity and honesty, treating people as we would want to be treated. So these are all principles that we find in the Scripture that we strive to do. We've never done it perfectly, but uh, that's what we strive to do uh, by example and through uh, how we teach our uh, employees to, uh, to serve those that they're here to serve. Now, maybe this sounds kind of obvious, but there's got to be times when faith and business sort of rub up against each other. Um, and some of those decisions have got to be difficult decisions, not obviously uh, black or white, exactly what you should do. How, how do you process something like that? How do you navigate through the potential conflicts or the real conflicts? You know, uh, we are uh, probably more fortunate than many in the fact that uh, there's not a lot of uh, any one stakeholder that would be able to put high pressure on us um, as a manufacturer might have. Let's say you're a manufacturer that has a, a vendor that has 
a large percent of your business you're selling them to, they have a lot of leverage to to say that you you need to do certain things uh, that may go against your 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 uh, religious beliefs. But um, we're we're fortunate in our in the retail business that we don't have that. But uh, the the primary example that, that we would have would be when the government uh, mandated that we provide products to our employees that we uh, believe would take life and. Um, uh, that was uh, uh, the HHS mandate requiring abortifacients uh, be provided for free. And uh, that was something that the family had to sit down and discuss. And uh, it violated our uh, religious beliefs. And uh, so we had to challenge the government that and we're fortunate to have a win. An amazing win before the United States Supreme Court. And your company was then uh, exempted from providing these drugs. Uh, that just triggers all kinds of questions for me. Um, one is, did, did that affect business? You know, it's hard to say. Uh, that was a year that we were adding a lot of stores. And so when we add a store in a market, it will have a negative impact on existing stores. And uh, we were adding uh, between 60 and 70 stores that year. So uh, we were impacting ourselves, um, And uh, we it probably had some impact. It's hard to say for sure or, or to measure it because of other factors as well. But um, it, it was not a significant impact, but maybe it had some. All right. So what was it like personally? There's the business side of it, but uh, I would think having all the news and then a Supreme Court case and then a win, and that, that had to have a lot of emotions, and especially in a family context. You know, it did, and I think everyone potentially um, uh, had had different ways that they responded. But for the most part, I think that there was a fair amount of peace that uh, the family felt. Uh, we we had a meeting uh, discussing it, and uh, my dad kind of led that meeting. Uh, there was around uh, 15, 18 of us there. Uh, my parents, which we refer to as Gen 1, myself, my brother and sister as Gen 2, and then our kids. And, um, you know, everybody got to speak and everybody said something. And uh, at the end of the day, we just felt like we had no option. Uh, we had to challenge the government. And so we did. And uh, there was just a certain sense that you know, no matter what the outcome, uh, we were confident that we were doing right by not being a part of taking life. And um, uh, there was, uh, you know, ups and downs, challenges as, as it went through the court system and there were wins and losses. But um uh, even through it all, there was uh, just a certain uh, peace to know that we were making the right call, doing the right thing. In the final Supreme Court decision, um, were you surprised or did it turn out as you expected? You know, I think that there was a, a high expectation of a win. At least uh, I had that. There, you, you never know uh, at a Supreme Court. You, In my mind, it, it was obvious that uh, this is foundational freedom that our, our founders uh, guaranteed the citizens of this country. And so it seemed to be obvious, but uh, there's there, there's twists and turns that the Supreme Court can take. So uh, when that ruling came down, uh, my wife and I were at uh, Oxford for a conference that we had there and uh, Skyping in the rest of the families of the conference room uh, here in Oklahoma City. And uh, so as we were uh, watching in, uh, it was uh, definitely an exciting day, an exciting time as uh, the ruling came down and, and we realized that we uh, had the favorable ruling. 
there are other religious liberty cases that are going through the court system, including at least one that the court has accepted, and we'll have legal arguments and a decision coming up. So what do you think uh, the Hobby Lobby case meant and still means for religious freedom in America? Well, um, I, I think it was exciting to see that uh, the the again the bedrock uh, freedoms that our nation was built on uh, was uh, supported and sustained and wasn't being chipped away at. Uh, I had felt that if we had a win, that there would the, the case would kind of go away simply because everything continued as it always had. Um, you know, business operators have always been able to operate their business according to their belief, whether you be a, a Jewish deli that doesn't want to sell ham and uh, or, you know, our, our business. So um, the, the the win in my mind was just, OK, there's no big, big change. But if we had lost, that would have been the, in essence, Roe v. Wade for religious liberties. Uh, but uh, as as other rulings and other challenges come down, uh, our case has been a bit of a uh, measure and will probably be brought up with uh, the other religious freedom cases that are in the courts today because there's still uh, attacks on religious freedoms and uh, we have to continue to be vigilant to stand for uh, those rights that our founders gave us. So let's go back to uh, business advice and I'll paint a picture for you that you're at a conference and uh, several uh, young Christians, maybe college students come up and they say that they're interested in pursuing a business career and they want advice from you because you have experience and success. And that could probably be a whole book. Uh, but what kind of advice would you give in a conversation like that? Well, I think first off, uh, you know, I have people sometimes uh, that, that see what Hobby Lobby is able to do in the way of uh, supporting ministry efforts and initiatives, and they love that idea. They have a, a heart, but uh, you know, I, it's not everybody is going to be able to have uh, the business success that my father had. And uh, you know, I, I like sharing about my grandmother who uh, uh, passed away in 1975 when my dad left his full-time job to to focus on this new startup, Hobby Lobby. Um, and she passed away never having uh, accomplished anything that this world would take notice of. But she lived her life faithfully. She raised six kids that all love God, serve the Lord. Uh, all of them actually went into pastoral ministry except for my father, either becoming a licensed pastor or marrying a pastor. And so, uh, but uh, I, I believe that she uh, lived her life faithfully, her her calling was to to raise her family and to live a faithful life, and uh, no one would stand up and take notice. And so it really doesn't matter whether you do something uh, in a large way or whether God's plan for a person's life is uh, to live a simple life and, and not uh, see the limelight. Um, uh, the, the primary focus would be, you know, what is God calling a person to do? God's got a plan and a purpose for everybody's life. And uh, for my grandmother, uh, she lived her life faithfully and well, and uh, was was a success, I believe, in God's eyes. And uh, so, uh, bottom line, and, and I even had this discussion with one of my uh, in-laws uh, not too long ago, is that uh, he was looking at opportunities, and I said, you know, I can't say what the right direction is. Ultimately, what I want for you is you to follow God's leading. Now, in some cases, I mentioned, what if God's not 
real particular and you could do whichever one you want because God says whatever your hands find to do. So I think there's a bit of a freedom there. In some cases it's, you know, you can go whichever direction you want, but whatever you do wind up doing, do it with all your might. And um, so uh, don't, don't have these starry visions and be disappointed if that doesn't happen. Just focus on serving God, doing what he's called you to do and do it well. Well, I really like the story about your grandmother because that speaks to the principle that you invest in the future and you may not actually see the results. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but you talked about Gen 1 and Gen 2. It sounds like your grandmother was Gen 0, sort of <laughs> yeah. the, the bedrock for uh, the multiple generations. Okay, yeah. so your family has been very, very generous, particularly to Christian causes. And maybe you've already answered that in terms of your grandmother, but how does that develop within a family, regardless of what the range of resources may be? Where does that generosity come from? Yeah, and I, I do go back to my grandmother. My, uh, you know, I, I didn't know her real well, but uh, knew her some. And obviously, my father just talks about how that she was giving. Uh, she always would tithe if people would bring groceries from their garden uh, to give them as a pastor and a pastor's wife. She would value what the the, the groceries cost. She'd pay tithes on that. Uh, so she she was giving even though she didn't have much. Uh, which uh, my father caught that, and uh, he, he has always been uh, having a giving spirit himself. And so we've, we've just grown up with uh, that as a heritage uh, passed down from my grandparents, uh, even on, on my mother's side as well, who was uh, giving and served in church camps and cooking. And uh, so uh, that, that just was a heritage that uh, we've been blessed to have, and uh, it's exciting to be able to uh, give in significant ways and see uh, God blessing others through our giving. I've heard lots of conversations about tithing over my experience. What you just said is the first time I've ever heard of someone saying they tithe on the basis of an in-kind gift. That is, yeah, uh, that's extraordinary. All right, well, let's go and talk about the Museum of the Bible. Um, dating back to you and your family collected uh, a lot of artifacts, um, the museum and the Bible, well, we're going to talk a whole bunch about it, but it started, from, if I got this right, from your private collection, and I don't know, you're at something like 40,000 objects. How did all of that get started, and what's, what's your driving force behind this passion, not just for the Museum of the Bible, but collecting these artifacts? Yeah, it started with just the dream of a Bible museum, and uh, several have had that dream. My brother has mentioned it a time or two as uh, he was operating a Christian bookstore, and um, so um, uh, the the economy, when it uh, had uh, struggles in 2008, 2009, provided some opportunities, and uh, some of those opportunities for acquiring some biblical artifacts were presented to us, and we started acquiring, not knowing that we would be able to collect uh, as many items as we did, as, as rapidly as we did, but at first we started asking around the collectors, dealers, and checking auction houses, um, and started buying. And uh, and then eventually people started coming to us, and, and we are still, you know, as word got out about what we were doing and the, the idea of a museum. And so uh, we we have people that uh, will knock on our doors now and, and uh, continue to look at opportunities. We're not buying as much as we, we were, simply because we have a large collection. And 
Uh, we just are mainly looking for where we may have holes. And we're also uh, inviting uh, others to be a part of the museum. There's over 40 entities or uh, individuals that are uh, having items on loan in the museum. And so if we, we don't have to own everything. And uh, with the relationships we're having, uh, uh, we, we can fill those holes with uh, other collections, libraries, or museums. So, uh, But the collection grew rapidly, and uh, we were on the journey of opening a museum, and uh, it's been a, an exciting journey for our family. And Israel has been a partner, and they have enormous resources from the Bible. Is that right? They do, and that's one of the examples I use is we have a few uh, Dead Sea Scroll fragments, but uh, the Israeli Antiquity Authority has uh, 15,000. And so what, what I have tells in comparison and uh, our 40,000 items, which we would only have a, like the, a few items from the collection ever on display, but uh, it really pales in comparison with those that we're working with. We've worked with the uh, Israel Antiquity Authority and the Vatican, some of the greatest collections uh, on the planet, and are excited about having relationships where they can have items on display in the museum as well. So what most excites you about the Museum of the Bible? Well, I think that um, the the idea that we are in just inviting all people, because this is a book that speaks to all people, has impacted people from all different walks of life. And um, I, we are probably uh, more ignorant of this book as a nation than we have ever been, simply because we don't teach it as we once did. And, and we want to reintroduce this book that has had an impact on our world to to all people. So our mission is to invite all people to engage with this Bible. Uh, uh, so hopefully when a visitor, as they are leaving our museum, they will be inspired to say, I have got to know this book better, open it up, begin to read it, engage with it, uh, and and learn from it. So uh, the, the, the ability to excite somebody to engage with it, that is uh, what gets us excited. Uh, you're seeing the finished product. I actually toured the building, but it was early in the construction process. So I had the helmet on and you know, bare walls. It's an old building. Um, talk a little bit about the, the building and its amazing location. Wow, it's really uh, terrific. Yeah. In the, the, the the, yeah, just a few blocks from the Capitol. It's two blocks from Air and Space, uh, one of the most attended museums in the country. There is a metro stop that comes up in the at the other end of the block of our entrance, so you don't even have to cross the street. And I think that may be the only museum in town uh, that has that. Uh, it was originally built, the building was originally built as a refrigerated warehouse in 1923 and then expanded. Uh, then an office building built uh, adjacent to that, that that covers the whole block. Um, we, we took the expansion all the way down and, and rebuilt it and Took out every other floor of the uh, the refrigerated warehouse, added a floor on top of the office that includes some um, office space for the museum, and uh, so it was a uh, great building. We designated it historical, and uh, there was a train that would a spur that would pull into the second floor of the building. So the building uh, is very sturdy, and uh, but a lot of renovation done. It's a gorgeous building, and I think people are going to love uh, what we have done with it uh, when they come visit. So it's designed to be a mix of artifacts, but also modern technology, and then different levels give different types of experiences. Um, maybe you can talk about that, but what, what do you think is going to be the most popular part? What, when people walk out, what do you think are going to be one of the top things they're going to talk about? Yeah, there's three ways we look at the book. It's history, it's impact, and it's narrative. And each of them kind of target a different audience, but hopefully all of them will be engaging for all audiences. The history floor is more for the 
uh, scholarly. It's, it's translations, it's languages, it's archaeology. Um, so it's more scholarly, but we, we would think that everybody would enjoy it. The, the narrative floor is where we just want somebody to have a basic understanding of what the story of the Bible is. So in essence, I think of its primary target as the person that doesn't know anything about the Bible. Well, start with knowing its story. And then the third, uh, the impact is probably for a broad audience. It's for everybody to just to show how this book has had an impact on their life. And I think people are going to be a bit surprised uh, what they might learn, how this, this book impacted their lives in ways that they had no idea that it had an impact. So uh, that being a, a broader audience. I think one of the things that people are going to like um, uh, as well as any, and there's just so much that we could talk about, but one of them is a flyboard theater on the impact floor. It's really a Disney-esque ride where we fly people through Washington, D.C., showing them where scriptures engraved on monuments throughout the city. And uh, it's it's just a fun experience. It's educational. And uh, when they leave, we would encourage them with an app or with a brochure where they could go find those places themselves. But uh, the, the we have to make uh, the story engaging, and it's an incredible story. But if I just put a book under a glass case that nobody can read, uh, it's not real engaging. So we have to tell that story, and we do that through the technology. And uh, there's some brand new technology that we're developing for the museum, and uh, I think people are going to enjoy that uh, immensely. Probably most of the visitors that are going to come are lay people. They're, they're not academics. Um, and there'll be some people, of course, that know very, very little about the Bible, so this could be transformative. But you also have on your staff some superb scholars with uh, high credentials in education and and biblical studies. Is that right? It is. We have uh, engaged over 100 professors at over 50 universities around the country and around the world to, to do research and uh, have input. Uh, we, we really want what we say to be scholarly. Uh, we want it to be accurate. Uh, we have certain guidelines. It's not that we, in essence, are espousing a faith of the Bible. We tell the story of the Bible, but uh, we leave it to the visitor to decide what they want to believe about it. Uh, so we, we want to be able to present the factual information about the Bible, uh, and, and we have engaged uh, you know, great scholars. Uh, one of the leading Dead Sea Scrolls scholars is Emmanuel Tove, as an example, and uh, the Dead Sea Scroll fragments that we have has been published, and he was the primary scholar that was uh, working uh, to to produce that, and so in in all areas there are experts in those areas, and uh, in most of those we uh, are engaged with in one way or another. Uh, so uh, we we want to be sure that we're accurate in what we have to say. If I may risk an analogy between uh, business and the Museum of the Bible, you did not build one huge superstore in Oklahoma that expected everybody to come to Oklahoma. You've taken Hobby Lobby out around the country, and you're doing the same thing with the Museum of the Bible, with traveling exhibits and educational programs, and I'm I'm just fascinated by that because obviously most people in America, 300 plus million people, aren't going to come to Washington, so you go to them. So where did that get started, and how's that going to work? Well, the traveling exhibits is really the first thing that got started because we were building a collection. There was a lot of items that we had sitting in our closet uh, that we were itching to tell their story. And at the time, we had no idea when or where we would be open. Uh, so we um, decided to build a traveling exhibit uh, here in Oklahoma City. It traveled to six cities around the U.S. And that opened up uh, the opportunity to do some international exhibits. Uh, we've had an exhibit twice at the Vatican. We've been to uh, Israel at the 
in Jerusalem at a museum there. We have been to Cuba twice. Uh, we were in Germany this year celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, uh, Argentina, uh, and there's other uh, exhibits that we were uh, are considering. And so, as you said, there will be millions that will come to the museum, but many more millions will never make it. And so, uh, a couple of ways that we go to the people is the traveling exhibits being one and through curriculum. We are working on developing curriculum. Uh, we had a mayor in Israel that saw what we were developing, wanted it in his schools. And uh, uh, so far we're having, uh, last year we had over 100,000 kids going through the curriculum in, in Israel. It's primarily the Hebrew text, but um, we're, we're excited about saying we want to educate people about this book and the curriculum is another way for us uh, to go to the people that may never make it to the museum. In the future, whether it's a magazine feature story or somebody writes a book about um, you and your family and Museum of the Bible, what would you like them to say that the museum has accomplished? Well, one, that it was done well, um, that we are true to what we say, that we just want to present the evidence and let the visitor make their own decision. And ultimately, that it inspires people to get to know this book. And uh, bottom line is uh, we believe that this book is exactly what it claims to be, uh, that there is a God and that they will come to see that uh, what we believe is uh, is is true. And uh, we, in the museum, we don't cross that line. We don't say whether it's true or whether it's good. We let the visitor decide. But I believe it is both true and I believe it is good and that it is a message for all people and uh, we would hope people will see that. Our guest on today's conversation has been Steve Green, president of Hobby Lobby, and we've been talking about the Bible and business. We encourage you, really encourage you, to come to visit the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Also, the NAE's Bible Reading Guide is available for order and is a great way for churches to encourage their people to make God's Word part of everyday life. The Bible Reading Guide will take you all the way through the Bible in a year. It's in chronological order. Um, you read the Psalms on Sundays because a lot of people are really busy on Sundays, so it's a little bit shorter then. And you can order them in packages of 50 or 250 or 500. So if interested, go to nae.net slash brg, just nae.net, and then if you can add the slash for Bible Reading Guide, brg. I'm Leif Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Steve. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.